प्रज्ञापारोचित शुभम तेनाजगत्कृत्न प्रज्ञापारायण तेनाजगत्कृत्न प्रज्ञापारायण ृदयशुघात केशवधृत बुद्ध शरीर जय जगदीश हरे जय जग शहरे जय जगदीश हरे जय जगदीश हरे सचुदेव on this very auspicious day which happens to be the thrice blessed day it is the on the day of the buddha purnima bhagwan buddha was born he attained nirvana the enlightenment and again this is the day when he left his mortal body to enter into the state of parinirvana to the ultimate liberation which is beyond this mortal existence so on the same day he was born he attained nirvana he even attained the parinirvana so that's way that's how this is a thrice blessed day so on this occasion we will have a short discussion on the life and teachings of buddha the word buddha means the one who is enlightened the buddhi whose buddhi has been enlightened whose intellect is enlightened what does it mean how he has attained that enlightenment through his life and how it finds expression through his teachings as the way to that enlightenment we will try to have a short discussion on it so this is the very day he was born before his birth we find that there are a lot of premonitions his mother mahamaya the queen she had a magnificent a dream she dreamt that a white elephant with six tusks a completely white elephant with six tusks descended from the heavens the elephant approached mahamaya and it held a brilliant pink lotus flower in its trunk and placed the flower within the queen's body 
Then the elephant too entered her effortlessly and all at once she was filled with deep ease and joy. So when she got up from her bed, she told the entire the dream to her husband, King Shuddhodana. And he also was quite marveled at the dream of the queen. So as was the practice in those days, the king summoned all the so-called the soothsayers, the holy men, to come and interpret the queen's dream. So after listening intently to the queen's dream, they all responded, they all agreed to respond in that your, that the king, your majesty, the queen will give birth to a son who will be a great leader. He's going to be a great leader. But what type of leader? There are two things which may happen. He is either destined to become a mighty emperor or he might be a great teacher who will show the way of truth to all the beings. So either of this can happen. So now it was a custom in those days, even now it's followed to a certain extent, that the woman, they go to their parents' house before they give birth to their the newborn baby. So Mahamaya was on her way to the parents' house. And now she stopped in Lumbini. There is a garden of Lumbini. And there was an Ashoka tree, a beautiful Ashoka tree fully bloomed. And she felt drawn towards that tree. Admiring the tree, she went near it. She walked near it. And suddenly she felt unsteady. And she grabbed the branch of the Ashoka tree to support her. And it is that moment, just at that moment, you will find there are a lot of such paintings. Mahamaya giving birth to Buddha, holding the branch of the Ashoka tree. So that it is at that moment that still holding the branch, Queen Mahamaya gave birth to that the radiant son, the Buddha, who is going to be the great teacher of the entire humankind. So as there was no longer need to go to the parents' house, parents' home. She was on her way to the parents' home. Now there was no need. So the queen and the newborn prince returned, came back on their horse carriage, returned back. And seeing the newborn baby, the king Shuddhodana was just overjoyed, was full of joy. And immediately he named him, king named him Siddhartha. The word Siddhartha is very significant. Siddha Artha. That was who has accomplished his aim. In our life, we never are Siddhartha. Yes, for the time being, we think that this is our goal. When we reach, we find that still there are so many things which is drawing me. I never, I'm never satisfied. I feel as if I have reached a plateau. I don't know what to do with my life after that. So in that way, we are not Siddhartha. So the name itself is so significant. He was named Siddhartha, whose purpose is of life is solved forever, never to feel the hankering for any other higher accomplishments. All the accomplishments that as a human being, we can attain through the human birth has been attained by him, that his future life will show. So his name was Siddhartha, Siddhartha. The king Suddhodana again after the birth called the soothsayers 
to tell him about the newborn baby's future. And after examining the baby's features, they all again agreed the same thing, that he's going to be the great leader and he's going to rule over a mighty kingdom, which will spread in all the directions. The king was happy because when the first time he heard the soothsayers, there, there was an option. But now he was very happy. They sp spoke only of the first option, that he is going to be the mighty emperor. But in no time, another holy man, he came. His name was Asita, Sage Ashita. He was an old man, tottering old man. He was just taking, he was on the support of his sticks. His, bank, his back was bent with age. So this holy man came from a long distance and he was highly revered. This holy man, this Ashita, the sage Asita. He came, he gazed at the child and immediately he started crying. So now the king was really taken aback that why this sage is crying. So he asked the reason. When asked the reason, he replied that he sees clearly that the child is going to be the great teacher of the humankind. He's going to penetrate the mysteries of the universe. So, but he won't be alive to see that great master showing the humankind the way. He's old. He's a tottering on his sticks. He's an old man. He's going to die in no time. So he won't be there to hear the great teacher proclaim the truth. And that's why he's crying. So the king again felt a bit perplexed. So again, from nowhere, the sage Asita came to speak of the other way, which was spoken of at the, uh, before the birth, when the queen had the dream. So now the king was a bit perplexed. So he tried his best from the very birth of Buddha to keep Buddha indulged, absorbed in all the luxuries that was possible so that his mind may never get just again attracted to the spiritual way of living. That spirituality should be somehow something which can be uh, synchronized with the royal life, not an exclusive spiritual life which speaks of renunciation where he's supposed to leave his hearth and home and go for the search for the truth that King Shuddhadana never wanted because after all, he was the higher apparent. He is the only prince who is going to succeed him. So now he kept as much as possible in the, the luxuries of the royal life. But we find that soon after the child was born, the Queen Mahamaya, his mother, Buddha's mother died. And for almost from the very beginning, we find that Sister Prajapati, Mahamaya's sister Prajapati, she is the one who became the foster mother of Gautama, of Buddha. As a child, his name was Siddhartha. The Gautama was the family name. So Prajapati, sister Prajapati became the foster mother. And then we find that just the way any other royal child is brought up, Gautama has been brought up. He was extremely skilled in archery and others manly sports. And the king was quite happy that he was growing the way he wanted. And soon we find that this uh, Gautama uh, Siddhartha, 
has entered the next stage of life. He has took for wife the princess Yasodhara. Yasodhara was the wife of Buddha and Buddha was married. And to him was allotted four palaces for the four seasons so that he gets totally absorbed in the worldly way of living. King Suddhodana was very pleased to find his son is developing into a worthy, this higher apparent, the Yubaraja. He's just uh, quite happy with that. But he saw that the prince began to look beyond the pleasures and delights of the worldly life. Now and then he was found to be in solitude, in spite of all the am, this amenities for pleasure, luxury, he will resort to solitude and he would be indrawn. And one day we find that he somehow insisted to be taken out. The Chanda, the one who was the, the horse carriage, uh, the, the, the Sarathi, the one who was the, uh, we used to take, he was, he's the charioteer. He asked the charioteer to take him out, out of the palace life. He felt it to be a bit suffocated. He wanted to go out. And there we find the Buddha for the first time is exposed to the naked truths of life. What's that? The famous four sights, which has been spoken of in Buddhism as the, as the transformative power, as the cause for the transformation of Buddha. Four sights. What are the four sights? He saw an old man tottering on his sticks an old man. For the till now, he was only with the youth in the palace, his friends, wife, wife's attendants, all were young. King arranged that way. For the first time, as he's seeing an old man, he's surprised to see that some, some person can become like this. He asks Chanda. And Chanda is just saying the facts of life, that we all have to go through this process. We are not going to be young through eternity. The decay is something which is waiting for all of us. So for the first time, Buddha is exposed. It makes him think. And then he sees the sick man, the decay, this this decay, disease, death. He sees the sick man. Till now, he never knew what his sickness is, illness is. Again, he's exposed. He's been explained that this old age, decay, disease, death. And the third thing he sees, a corpse, a dead body. He was surprised, taken aback to know that we all have to meet the same fate today or tomorrow. It is in this world of uncertainty where nothing is certain. One thing is certain. Death, we all know, we all have to meet that. What is going to happen with me tomorrow, I am not sure about. What my de- where my destiny will take me, we are not sure about. Anything may happen, the world is so uncertain. Who knew we will go through this COVID even in 2020? In 2020, November, we never knew. And just see how the things have changed. All the plans, everything has to be molded as per the change which has happened suddenly. So we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But one thing is certain, today or tomorrow or some that's 
a very near future or maybe a bit distant future. Death is waiting for us. The corpse just spoke of that, that bare truth with which Buddha found is to be highly transformed that till now the life which he was thinking was the be all and end all of his existence. That's not the truth that we all have to go through this stage. And then he was very feeling very dejected. He was feeling very, uh, that's the melancholy. He was very melancholy. And then we find the fourth sight, he sees a monk, a monk whose face appeared to be calm, very calm demeanor. This is moving down the street. Seeing the monk again, he asked that who is he? And then he was, it was replied that seeing this transience, transient nature of the world, he is the one who has renounced and he's on the path of search, a search for his truth so that he can transcend the suffering. So there you will find that in our scripture, they speak of the Sadhu Sangha. So here also in Buddha's life, in a way it happened. It showed him the way that there most probably is a way out. The fourth sight was very important. The monk. In all in our life, any scripture you read, we will find a very interesting thing. It starts with dejection. The dejection makes us to search for the truth, something way out of it. Whether it is the Bhagavatam, which we have started studying, whether it is the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, whatever we study, you'll find it starts with a dejection. As if there is no way out. All the standards of life which I thought is going to substantiate me, they start falling down. I don't know that where is my security zone? A big question mark comes in my life. And then as an answer, we find there is some indication Immediately, I don't get the answer, but someone is as if pointing me that there is a way out. This monk was the pointer, was the index for Buddha to think of the other way of life. And that's how is the monk which made him to resolve, to renounce home, his wife, all attachments and wander alone in quest of the truth. So now this we find that Buddha is preparing for the great departure. He almost made up his mind to renounce. But then suddenly the news came that his son, he has, his wife has given birth to his son. He named the son Rahul. These names are very significant. That's the way Siddhartha means Siddhartha. The name Rahul is also very significant. But when Buddha has taken the resolution of sannyasa, the son was born as if as an hindrance for his sannyasa. Though we find that his renunciation was strong enough not to consider the birth of the son as an obstacle, but still to a certain extent it was an obstacle, a slight obstacle. And that's why he named his son Rahul. So you will find in Hinduism, that Rahu is the, that, the graha, which hinders all our so-called uh, this uh, 
our endeavors. If you are having an endeavor, the hindrance comes in the form of Rahu and Ketu. So that's why you find his name is Rahul. Rahul means as if I was about to take this great departure, this my quest for the truth, and suddenly as an obstruction, my son is being born. So that's why he named him Rahul. Very interesting. Uh, for the sannyasis, the Shani is a very, very considered a very, very favorable God. Why? <laughs> Just the opposite. The householders think that Shani is something very dangerous because it can totally shatter the, all the dreams of which you have for your worldly life. And that's what a sannyasi wants, that let that dream be shattered. So here we find that, that though the name is Rahul, we shouldn't take it in a way that as if he's indicating that it is something which is an ill omen. It is actually increasing his, that uh, we find that it actually increased his resolution, intensified his resolution, that he finds that the Rahul is a determining factor, that the son was born in such a point of time where if renunciation was not strong, he would have wavered. He would have again went back to his family life. But Rahul becomes the deciding factor. He found that in spite of the birth of his son, his resolution at last couldn't be wavered. Though at the beginning he felt a bit hesitant, but he found that the fire of renunciation was so strong, it enabled him to just be firm in his resolution. So that way the Rahul is a blessing. Is a blessing we will find much later that we won't be discussing today. When after Buddha attained enlightenment, when he came back, just it's there in our scriptures that after you attain enlightenment, you can come back to meet your family. Because now nothing can distract you. You have reached the enlightenment. The world can no more lure you. So just they come back if not uh, forever, just for once to meet his family and his wife, his family. So when Buddha came back, there's a very nice incidence that Yashodhara seeing Buddha coming back, asked Rahula, his son, go meet your father and ask for your inheritance. That after all, he's your father. You can claim your inheritance from him. Most probably that's the time also Yashodhara had that expect that expectance uh, that, uh, that she was expecting that most probably now Buddha may return. So the son may be the one who may go and ask for the inheritance. So to give to, uh, so that to give the inheritance he has to come back and again take the charge of the royal this, uh, of this all the responsibilities. but we find just the opposite happens. When Rahul goes and asks for inheritance, Buddha says, I am a sannyasi. What you inherit, if you want to inherit, you can inherit my sannyasa. And that's how Rahul also became sannyasi. So even Yashodhara became sannyas, took sannyasa. There was a woman's wing. So those things, that, that it's a huge, uh, that's a, a history. That's a very, very big history that went to enter Buddhism. We won't enter there, but we just indicate that Rahul, though it means indicates Rahu, but actually Rahul was never the deterring factor. We find that he also, when he grew up, he also developed the same traits as his father and 
he also resorted to the path of sannyasa. So he stood firm in his resolution and took the decision that though his son was born, he will leave that very night. The day his son is born, that very night he will leave to have the great departure. So he informs his charioteer Chanda and asks him to keep his faithful horse Kantaka ready so that at midnight they can move out of the, the town Kapilavastu, the capital city of the kingdom. They wanted to move out of it at, date, at the date of night. And then we find that Buddha at the night when all are sleeping, he just wanted to have a parting look of his sleeping wife and the newborn son. And a tremendous craving develops. Just to, that urge comes, what? To go and kiss the child. He moves, but again, he restricts himself. Blessed, the child wakes up. So he never just, just sees them and then he comes back and now he's ready for the great departure. The departure, which at last proved to be, which has to, at last has proven to be, not the departure for ever. He departed to bring the peace, to bring the truth back to the humankind. So he departed so that at last, for ages together, for thousands of years, even till now, he could find a place in the heart of each and every being. So that's, the, that's why it is a great departure. So he went to the wide world of the forests. He traveled through the towns, the villages, so, so that he can find out the mystery of the entire existence. And finally, he can enlighten the hearts of each and every being. So he soon, we find that enters the course of study. In those days, there were various, various schools. There were various schools of spirituality. He goes and tries to get trained in their philosophy, in their process of meditation. He had two teachers in succession. And then we find that he himself has started leading the life of a renunciate. We find him in the jungles of Uruvela, which is in the vicinity of Gaya. And he himself had five disciples. Some five other disciples were highly inspired by his tremendous renunciation. He had a tremendous renunciation that almost entailed total, what you say, that emaciation of the body. He won't take food at all. It was such a rigorous austerity and earnestness that inspired the disciples. It was almost leading to the mortification of the flesh. He was so weak that he couldn't walk. You could, could count his bones. There are some frescoes, some pictures where shows the Buddha going through that extreme mortification. And when one day he was trying to meditate and he became unconscious because he had no energy left out, so exhausted. And then he realized that just by the mortification of the flesh, you are just facing death from emaciation. You just emaciate and you will be meeting death. It in no way is going to give you emancipation, liberation. It is like a slow suicide. So this realization made him give up his austerity. Seeing him giving up his austerity, the five disciples thought that he has wavered and they forsook him. 
and they went to the city of Varanasi. They left him uh, and went to the city of Varanasi. Now Buddha was left alone in Uruvela. We find that now after resolving not to go to the extreme, he took a bath in the river Sarayu and then come, came back. And he was about to sit for meditation. He was terribly hungry. Then this the girl of the village landlord, Shujata, this story we all know, she comes with seeing she actually was uh, she was carrying the rice porridge to offer it to the god of the forest and entering the forest seeing buddha at first she thought him to be the that uh, some uh, the forest uh, the, the god of the forest has as if uh, incarnated as the in the form of buddha and then he she was so attracted by uh, Siddhartha, but Buddha, he was yet to become Buddha. Still, he's the Siddhartha. He went, she went and offered this rice porridge to Siddhartha, to Gautama. And having this rice porridge, he had that energy. He sat under the Ashwatta tree, the Bodhi, famous Bodhi tree. He sat under the Bodhi tree with a strong resolution. Yes, now I feel energized. I had that I was terribly hungry. I had this rice porridge and now I feel quite energetic. But now I'm not going, this is my final attempt. I'm not going to get up from my seat unless I attain the enlightenment. And the famous sloka which speaks of this supreme renunciation that used to be uh, written on the walls of our Varanagar. You know that the first monastery of Ramakrishna mission, after the passing away of Ramakrishna, when the 16 direct disciples of Ramakrishna took the resolution of reading the life of a renunciate, of sannyasa, for them the Varanagar monastery was hired. It was a dilapidated building. And those days they were going through tremendous austerity, tremendous sadhana, spiritual practices. And in the walls, they wrote this the sloka, which speaks of the strong resolution of Buddha, that I'm not going to get up from my seat of meditation till I attain the liberation. So what's that sloka? Ihasane shushyatu me shariram. Let my body dry up in this asana. Ihasane, ihasana. In this asana, shushyatu. Shushyatu means suck, sucking up, dried up. Let my body get totally dried up. Me shariram, my body. Tvak asthi mangsam pralayam chayatu. Let the flesh, the tvak, bones, asthi, mangsam, the uh, tvak is the skin, mangsam is the flesh, and asthi is the bone. Means let my entire body attain pralaya. Pralaya means total disintegration. Aprapya vadhi bahukalpa durlavam. The bodhi, the enlightenment, which we all aspire, we all aspire to reach that enlightenment, where from where we find that nothing can affect us, all the dualities of life fall off in that state. So just to attain that durlava, that's something which is not easy to attain. That's durlava vastu, that attain that uh, enlightenment, 
till I attain. I'm not going to get up. Naivam ashanat kayam atah chalishyate. That my, my body is now conjoined with my asana. It is not going to be disjoined. It is not going to move out from the asana till I get the enlightenment. So with this resolution, he sat for that meditation under the Bodhi tree. And even if you will find in the Buddhist literature, it is mentioned that at the end of that, his meditation, he's attained, he's, has attained nirvana, enlightenment. Nirvana means the blowing off of the lamp. The lamp is burning. Nirvana means it's the blowing off. So from the word blowing off, we may feel as if that nothing remains. The prana is blown off. But the blur, nirvana means blowing off of the five flows, which Buddha will speak of. The five flows to which we are attached. This body, our mind, our perceptions, our feelings, all those things are flow. They are not something which is my identity. But we somehow identify with those. So that gets extinguished. Your attachment to these flows, that will get extinguished. So he attains that nirvana. And that state is being described by Buddha as cheto vimukti. Cheto means the chetana. That is a mukti. It is the liberation of the chitta. That is unless our chitta, that's first what he was doing. He was trying to practice extreme mortification. That way your body will be emaciated. You will meet death. But that is just the death of the body. The mind still remains. As in our scripture, it it has been mentioned. It is the mind which is the cause of transmigration. Just the way our body is related to our nails. The nails grow. You pair them off. Again, it grows. Similarly, the mind is like the body. And all our so-called physical bodies are like the nails. Birth after birth, they are growing, we are pairing off, again it comes. So mind is the main body. From where, like nails, all these sthula sharidas come. So if you just kill one body through austerity, it is just like pairing of the nail. The body or the real body, the mind is still there. The nail will again grow. So to kill the mind alone is liberation. To just, the mind should fall off. So how that is possible? Just by getting detached from all the things which you think is your real identity. So Chetu Vimukti, your Chitta has to get freed from all those attachments which actually are all flow, which you can never hold on to. The same idea we find is in the Upanishads spoken of. What that? What's that final liberation which speaks of the Liberation of the chitta, vidyate ridaya granthi, chidyante sarvasamshaya, kshiyante chasya karmani, tasmin drishte paravare. When you attain that liberation, paravara, drishte, tasmin drishte, when you see the truth as if face to face, then what happens? Vidyate ridaya granthi. All the attachments, the granthi, granthi means all the entanglements of the heart, vidyate, they fall off, they are cut asunder. 
and all your doubts vanish. Chidyante sarva samshaya. Kshiyante chasya karmani. That all the karmas which you have accrued, they are not going to bear fruit anymore. They fall off. And that enters into the liberation. That same idea we find in the word Chetu Vimukti has been spoken of. So attains that. After attending that, the first thing which Buddha thought, that there is no need now for me to continue with the life. Let me be immersed in the Samadhi, the state of Nirvana. And let even the body fall off. What's the use of continuing in this body when you know this life is just simply a flow. It has no as such ultimate purpose. And I have realized the truth. Once you have realized the truth, you can get rid of your body. That's not suicide. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say very nicely, that once you have realized whether the body stays or it goes, it doesn't matter. Even you can uh, voluntarily get rid of your body. That won't be considered as suicide. If he used to give a very nice example, there is a medicine in this, you know, there's an Ayurvedic medicine called Makaradhvaja. What is Makaradhvaja? It's a medicine which helps in rejuvenating your entire system. But how it is made? Various liquids, various liquid portions are poured into a bottle and it has to be, that bottle has to be kept without disturbing, it has to be kept in a corner for a few days. And after a few days, when you come back, you will find that the liquid has crystallized. All the liquid portions which you have poured, they have crystallized. And that's the medicine. That's the medicine which will actually rejuvenate you. But now that as that has crystallized within the bottle, how to get it? You have to break the bottle. So Ramakrishna used to say, once the Makaradhvaja is formed, there is no need for that glass bottle. You break it. You can even break it. So that's why even Buddha felt like going beyond this physical existence. But as you know, why we call Buddha also an avatar? So we have actually uh, taken Buddha in the fold of Hinduism by making him an avatar. Though he is a rebel child of Hinduism, that's what Swami Vivekananda used to say, that Buddha is a rebel child of Hinduism. From the, he's a product of Hinduism. He took the essence of Hinduism and as if came out to form a separate religion, the Buddhism. So this, this rebel child of Hinduism, Buddha, we find that he's coming out, that what's the thing which we are speaking of, that he is actually thinking of living of the body and suddenly the compassion dawns in. What's the compassion? That he knows that what I have realized for the vast majority of the world were sense-bound. They're incapable to even real understand this, the value of this truth. They won't realize. Even if I preach, they won't realize. Then what's the use that even if I come down and try to preach to others, Buddha realized that yes, vast majority won't even hear to it. But there are a few who have a, are in the between state, in the stage, they are neither extremely attached nor they have attained that spiritual illumination so that they can transcend the suffering. There's something in between. 
it has been mentioned even the same ideas in the bhagavatam that you know this in this world there are three types of people one is extremely attached the others are liberated they both are happy you find they both are happy they have no such conflicts in their life those who are extremely attached they, they never go beyond the sense pleasures very happy with their life and those who are liberated of course they are happy the suffering is only those who are in between in bhagavatam the phrase is klishta antarito jana those who are in between those who have somehow understood that this life this sense bound life after all has no purpose there is some higher dimension of existence to which i should get identified but they are yet to get identified they want someone to show them the way so buddha felt the compassionate that compassion for that antarito those that that who had that moral and spiritual capacity to grasp his message there was a few there were a few and that's why he's coming down as if avatarana that's why he's avatar it is all in all the religions we find is a prophet who is as if out of compassion coming down to teach the humanity they know well that majority won't accept his truth they know well they may even be crucified but at the same time they know there are a few maybe a handful of dozen just a dozen at the beginning but those handful if he gives the message that message will be there to save humanity for ages together same idea we find that when even swami vivekananda people for this idea is is a very interesting when swami vivekananda thought the thought of organization came to his mind the initial thought was no there is no need for organization what he says is something very interesting that all the organize that organization is a useless thing i won't go for founding an organization why all the organizations are a very low efficiency engine they take a lot of fuel but gives very less output <laughs> with so you will find that the why how, how what's the paradox the word church actually means a congregation of people it doesn't mean the building but now for a congregation of building you have for a congregation of people you have to have a building so gradually the building had became synonymous to the word church the word church really means congregation of people it doesn't have any things with the building but as you need a building for the congregation so gradually the church became synonymous to the building and now it stands there empty no one is there the congress church you find empty that all the religious it's not only the church of any particular religion church means if you take the word church the place of religion has lost its importance that why why it happens every age you will find it happens the same idea we will find even tulsidas is speaking that if that what this world you see is so, is so foolish how is what he is saying is very interesting that if you go to a village you find a very interesting thing the milkman go has to go to air from door to door to sell his milk the milk which nourishes you he has to go from door to door and the one who is selling the wine the alcohol he sits in one place he sits in one place all will come to him the thing which has as such no nourishing value it actually just simply is there uh, to intoxicate you 
So for that people run. So he found that the, the huge infrastructure and all those things after all will serve the purpose for only a few. The input will be a stupendous amount, tremendous fuel it will take, but at last its output is very less. That's what Swami Vivekananda thought. So I won't go for organization. And then the second thought came, but these ideas should be kept alight for thousands of years. Why? Because it is really going to benefit the ones who really need it. And so though it is a very low efficient engine for I, that the organization is needed. So you find that the same idea here that for the vast majority, it's of no use, maybe only a few, but that in spite of that fact, I need it so that there's no one is deprived. As Swami Vivekananda, when he was in the West, he used to say that if you say that you have the freedom for your sense-bound life, why not the few who doesn't feel interested in it should have their freedom? They should also have the freedom. They should also have the amenities for that. And Buddha, out of compassion, is coming down for that small group who has already developed the taste, has developed the capacity to grasp that the spiritual and the moral truth, which is going to deliver as his message. So now Buddha proceeded from uh, Gaya, the, the village Uruvela, where that Bodhi tree under the Bodhi tree, where he had attained enlightenment. Now, after take, getting that resolution, after that compassion dawns, he now starts proceeding towards Varanasi. He reaches Sharnath. If you go still that the where Buddha started preaching, the place is still there, the huge that uh, stupas are there. So he reached Sharnath, the deer park, and where he made the five disciples who abandoned him. He met them there. The five disciples from a distance seeing him felt that there's something different. There's a glow in his appearance that made them drawn towards him. He acts, and now, he accepted them again as they accepted him again as his as their guide as their master and now we find that the buddha after coming back his five discourses his first two discourses are to his this five disciples the famous two discourses of buddha throughout his life he gave innumerable discourses but these two discourses are as if the pillar of buddhism the first discourse is on middle path, the discussion of the middle path, the four noble truths and the noble eightfold path. These are the three things he preached in his first discourse. And the second discourse is the, this, the doctrine of non-self. So anatta, the theory of anatta. So this, the, the doctrine of non-self, very interesting, we will come to that. It even in Buddhism, we find certain sections, they say there is no self. But we will find Buddha never told there is no self. When he spoke of this in the second uh, lecture, in his second talk, the doctrine of anatta, what happens, you know, sometimes uh, we just take the phrase to be the sentence and then we commit a big mistake. In the original lecture of Buddha, Buddha never stopped by saying there is no self. What he said was there is no self 
in the five flows, the five rivers. That portion, if you take out, then if the meaning, if this total meaning is becomes different. There is no self in the body. That's what even in the Vedanta, the idea of Panchakosha is there. Annamaya Kosha, Pranamaya Kosha, Manomaya Kosha, Vijnanamaya Kosha, Anandamaya Kosha. What is this Kosha? It doesn't, Kosha means sheets. That doesn't mean that one after the other. It means the five layers of our identification. We identify with our body, Dhanamaya Kosha. We identify with our vital force. That's why we say, I am sick. When my vital force is dwindling, I say, I am sick. I am not sick. I am the Atman. The body is going, the vital energy has reduced. But as I identify with my body, I say, I am sick. I am feeling pleasure. I am feeling pain. All these are actually affecting the prana. But I identify with them. That's by these feelings of pleasure and pain, behind which the prana shakti is there. I identify with the perceptions that the fear that I am afraid, that, that I got deluded. I, it is uh, this word I itself, the egoism itself is an identification. When I say I, immediately I feel this body mind complex is the I. So these, the concept of ego has something to do with your mind. Then comes the isms that speaks of the Vijnana mind, the intellect. This is my opinion. This is the way I look at the truth, the concepts. And at last, all these four rivers, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the concepts, they're all linked with the consciousness. When I am aware of my body, my consciousness is aware of the body. This is not the ultimate consciousness which Buddha is speaking of. It is a consciousness which is aware of the body. It is a consciousness which is aware of the feelings. It is a consciousness which is aware of the perceptions. It is a consciousness which is aware of the concepts. And that, con- that awareness is also constantly flowing. When you are healthy, you say, I am healthy. When you are sick, you say, I am sick. So your con- awareness is also flowing along with those four flows to make that total five rivers. So Buddha is saying there is no self in these five rivers. They are all rivers. They are just flow. So he never said uh, that there is no self and stopped there. There is no self in body. There is no self in the feelings. There is no self in perceptions. There is no self in concepts. There is no self in the consciousness. The consciousness which is linked with the other four in that consciousness. So that's what he's told. So so this is the doctrine of non-self which he is speaking of. So these two discourses, if we just try to find a nutshell of it, what he told He spoke in the first lecture of the four noble truths of which the first truth is there is Dukkha. Very interesting. Buddha is the only spiritual teacher in the world who in the modern language tried to reform from bottom to top, not from top to bottom. In the modern sociology, we use the words, this reformation top to bottom and bottom to top. What is top to bottom? That there are a lot of family violence, To stop that, the government has made some laws. Can you stop that way? No. With that laws and all those things, from top, without all impositions, I can, at last we will find that the crimes are still existing in the society. People have at last ended up in jail, but it in no way deters the crime. So top to bottom reformation is never successful. You try to stop drugs uh, trafficking by 
uh, what you said by legalizing that making it not that uh, something illegal and you find what has happened that as you cannot sell drugs in the open market you have started smuggling there is a mafia to continue with that smuggling of the drugs so you find that the evil has found expression in a much more pervasive way from top to bottom you can never have reformation it should be from bottom to top that instead of trying to uh, stop this uh, drug trafficking if i can somehow make all aware of the bad effects of drug go to school have the awareness camps there that don't resort to to this type of things if i understand that how harmful it is and i i just make it a resolution that i won't resort to the drugs the drug market is automatically going to fall the, that the thing has happened with the tobacco industry all the tobacco industry now are making soaps in india because no one buys cigarette that there's not i won't say no one it's very few it has become something a matter of a small group so the market is falling they are just going to some other business so what there the reformation has happened from bottom to top you have just taken care of the micro level the macro level is taken care of automatically very interesting buddha is the only spiritual teacher who's thought of spiritual reformation from bottom to top how all religion starts if the noble truths are there if are there any noble truths in the other religion you will find the first noble truth will be there is god isn't it where is god i cannot see him i cannot see god and that's where you are starting there is god and entire spiritual life now becomes a bundle of doctrines and dogmas all preaching in their own way which are all imaginations and they are saying no this my imagination is the only truth other imagination is mere imagination buddha is starting very wonderfully he is saying there is dukkha it is something which we all perceive in our life is there any single human being who have not realized that dukkha the dissatisfaction in life it is something which is with all of us so you don't have to assume anything so buddha when he is not talking of god it doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in the existence of god there are some incident in his life very interesting finding buddha never speaking of god one day one man approached him and asked is there something called god buddha never replied he was sitting quietly so there now the man thought that most probably as he doesn't believe in god so he is not replying so then the then the person again asked oh so then there is no god isn't it buddha was silent neither he replied for the first question nor for the second question whether god is he was silent no yes no no oh then god is not that's what you mean again no yes no no so this man was frustrated without getting any answer he was leaving he was going back and then ananda saw his disciple buddha's disciple saw what's going on he came and asked buddha why don't you answer either say yes or no and what buddha told is very interesting that i never speak of the ultimate truth i never speak because the simple reason the one who have not tested the mango can you explain him the test of mango you may go on giving lectures throughout your life unless he tests it can you explain him it's impossible whether god is or not if i say god is what in what sense it makes to you if i unless you have realized have you tested the mango 
Have you realized God? If I have not, not realized, just saying yes, God is or no, God is not. What it means to me, it means nothing. So I never speak of the ultimate truth. I never speak. What I speak of is the way. The biggest problem is people take the way to be the truth and designate me as atheist or whatever it may be. I, I just, and then he gave a wonderful example. I am point, I am using my index finger to point at the moon and people take my index finger to be the moon. Just the way when you, for the first time, a small infant, if you try to point at the moon, you'll find the child is yet to develop focus. It's not looking at the moon. Then you force, you just catch hold of the child's chin and try to force it so that it's, the child's attention is on your index finger. And then you try to point at the moon. So after all this attempt at last, if the child really develops the focus, he will look at your index finger, but there his attention will be fixed. He never knows that this point, the finger is pointed to show something else. It will be looking at the finger and will think that that is the moon. When you say this is the moon, see this is the moon. They will think the index finger to be the moon. Buddha is saying, my condition is such. I never speak of the ultimate truth because there is no. it is useless to speak of that. What I am speaking of is the way. And for the way, I start from what we all realize. Dukkha, dissatisfaction. This dissatisfaction for what? Because we are trying to attach ourselves. The second to the cause of dissatisfaction is what? Cause of dissatisfaction is tanha. Tanha is the desire, the attachment. Attachment for what? The things which can I never hold on to. The five rivers which we are speaking of. The body which is constantly changing. It's just like an umbrella. An old man every day used to go for a morning walk with an umbrella. And he used to brag, this is the umbrella which is with me for the last 20 years. It may, this story may not have any sense in Australia, but in India it has a great sense where they throw away nothing. That umbrella, is, he's saying that he's with his 20 years. What has happened? When the spikes of the umbrella, they were damaged, he changed the spikes. At certain point of time, the cloth had certain holes. He changed the cloth. The, the stick in the middle in which the spikes are connected. That also was changed at particular time. There is nothing of the original umbrella. The stick, the spikes, the cloth, everything has been changed, not together. At certain time, the cloth was changed. At certain other times, the spikes were changed. At certain other times, the stick was changed. But this man has a feeling, this is that old 20 years old umbrella. That's our body. Our body is constantly changing. You know, if you go to Jagannath temple, there, there is a practice of uh, uh, what is it? burying the old deity after 12 years. The deity which is there of Jagannatha that is buried every 12 years. And they have a new deity. And there's a huge celebration. They call Nava Kalevar Dharana. That's the Lord has taken a new body. It's very interesting. 12 years. If you go to and ask any biologist, those who know that how our body is constantly rejuvenating, reviving itself. Old cells are drying, new cells are taking birth. It has been found that not a single cell is going to be alive for 12 years. So within 12 years, some bit early, some may take up to 12 years, it is going to die. 
So after 12 years, we all are having new body. This body is not there. So you'll find these ideas are so, these all ritualistic ideas are so wonderfully linked with the philosophy. So this body is constantly changing, but we think this is me. Some that uh, I, I heard a wonderful that some of the, uh, uh, this Hollywood heroine, when she was actually praised for her beauty, she told it is all pasta, nothing else. <laughs> it's a pasta which has got converted into that beautiful body. It's nothing else. So that's the body which is constantly in a state of flow, the feelings, the pleasure and pain with which we are so attached. When something ecstatic happened in our life, we are so ecstatic. Again, we feel I am happy, I am sad. They're all flow, constantly changing. Our dissatisfaction is because we are attaching to that. So we are, we are, we are attaching our identity with the body, with the feelings, with the perceptions of fear, delusion, hatred, anger, attachment. All those becomes as if me, my isms, the concepts, the fourth flow, my opinions, my perspectives, I'm attached to them, so much attached. I'm so much attached that that makes me fanatical. That makes me to kill others. So I'm so strongly attached to them. So all these attachments speaks of the cause of suffering. So like a doctor, first he designates the cause of our, the cause of the disease, that is the, this dissatisfaction, and then he designates the, the reason behind it, the cause, which is our attachment. And then he says, there's a way out. Don't think that this is a disease which cannot be cured. There's a cure. The third noble truth is that ease, the cessation of suffering is possible. There is cessation of suffering. Fourth shows the way, the treatment. That speaks of the noble eightfold path. The path leading to the cessation of suffering, the fourth noble truth. The four noble truths are first is that dukkha, second is the cause of dukkha, third is the assertion that this dukkha can be annihilated, and fourth is the path which shows the way of annihilation to the dukkha. So what is the path? You have to, that how that, by getting detached from this, that cessation of suffering possible by detachment from this flow, from the body, from the feelings, from the perceptions, from the concepts, you have to detach. How is it possible? The eightfold path. You'll find it is so similar to the Vedantic teachings. First, what are the eightfold paths which you have to practice in Buddhism? First is right perception. Second is right intention. Third is right speech. Fourth is right action. Fifth is right livelihood. Sixth, right effort. Seventh, right awareness. Eighth, right concentration. What it speaks of? The first two speaks of your intellectual understanding of the truth, right perception. That already we are speaking of, Buddha told of, that everything is a flow. That's the right perception, that nothing is going to stay with you. When Kisa Gautami, a widow who lost her only child, came crying with the dead body of the child to Buddha. Then Buddha just asking, was begging for the life of the child. That's, we find this wonderful story that Buddha, what he told, just get me one grain of rice from a household where none have died. Kisa Gautami really goes from door to door in search of a grain of rice from a house where no one has died. At last, she comes back. She fails. She couldn't get. There's no such house where none has passed away. And that's the right perception. Now the perception comes. that Everything is a flow. It has to happen today or tomorrow. And then comes the right intention. What's the right intention? Not to be in the stream. 
but to be the onlooker of the stream. In the words of Buddha himself, consciousness is not a dye for dyeing the cloth. It is a mirror. It is just a mirror where the so-called your self is just reflected. When you're standing in front of the mirror, this mirror reflects you. This body-mind complex is reflecting the consciousness. So consciousness is just a mirror. It is not a dyed cloth. It is not the dye by which you dye the cloth. So how, what is wonderful words you find, almost the same word in a different language. So these two gives you the intellectual understanding. First, you should have an understanding of the truth. And then as a foundation, shila, certain virtues have to be practiced. Immediately, I cannot go for meditation. What are the shila, the virtues? The next, uh, these four practices. What are the right speech, which speaks of, I should always be truthful. Satyam bruyat, priyam bruyat. You should speak the pleasant truth because unpleasant truth is always false. Why? Somebody, someone has stolen something and you tell you are a thief. You say, I have told the correct thing. No, harsh truth is always false. Why? The moment you say you are a thief, as if he is going to be thief through eternity. That's what he has stolen is just an act. He can easily get rid, can mend his way of life, can change his character. But when I say thief, as if he's going to be the thief through eternity, it is just an act for a particular time. He was not the thief. He has done something because of some misconception. He can outgrow it. That's why when you see, see a small child, you just blame him by saying you are stupid. Again, I am saying a harsh truth, which is false. I should have said, you are such a wonderful child. You have so much of potentiality. I have never expected such a super stupid act from you. The same thing you are saying in a different way. And now it becomes a pleasant truth. Just what Krishna says to Arjuna, that I had such a huge expectation from you. I never thought that you will be behaving in such an unmanly fashion. That's how the Gita starts. That's the truth. Satyam bruyat, priyam bruyat. Speak the truth, but in a very pleasant way. That's the first shila. The next shila, the next virtue is right action. Ahimsa. Don't hurt others. The things which hurts you, you should not do unto others. So practice compassion. Right livelihood speaks of asteya, aparigraha. In the Yoga Sutra we have studied the same things that asteya, don't steal others' property. Aparigraha, don't expect, uh, don't have that sense of expecting gifts from others. Just try to uh, be satisfied with whatever you have. This aparigraha means the constant, that uh, what you say that a sense of accepting things from others. You have got read of that. Asteya, aparigraha. That you don't try to get favors. Whatever you earn by your hard uh, labor, for that I have the right. There shouldn't be any greed. I shouldn't try to get from, extract from others which I don't owe. That is actually speaks of aparigraha. Sometimes I'm not stealing as such in a very direct way that I just go and say, take up the other's property. I may not be doing that. But constantly, I'm trying to fool others. In this society, it is very common that how I can get a few more dollars out of that person. That speaks the, of the practice of Aparigraha. I just am truthful. Whatever I do, I just try to earn that much. I don't try to extract more than that.
right effort. That speaks of the Madhya Pantha. But when Buddha found that he is emaciating his body, that is in no way helping him spiritually, spiritually, he took food. And that's how those five disciples deserted him. So now in, by speaking of right effort, he's speaking of Madhya Pantha. Buddha gave a very nice example. You take a, any stringed musical instrument. If you tighten the strings too much, the string will break. And if the strings are loose, you won't get music. You have to just tune it perfectly. So to have to get the music, not too tight, nor too slackened. Then only you get that proper music out of it. So that's the Madhya Pantha. You have to make the body, to make the body bring out the music of life. You shouldn't go to the extreme. Even in the Bhagavad Gita, the same idea is there. Who is a yogi who never go, who sleeps too much, nor is awake throughout the night. That he takes a resolution, I won't sleep at all. That is in no way going to help him. He neither eats too much, nor he goes for extreme, uh, this fasting. So he maintains, just for maintaining my body, whatever is required, I do. I, know God for, I never go for the excess, nor do I mortify it. That's the right effort. That's Madhya Pantha. When you have taken care of this Shila, the last comes the practice which leads to the experiential knowledge. First was the intellectual knowledge through the right perception and right intention. And then you practice the Shila as the foundation of your spiritual journey. And then comes the real practice which can take you to the realization. What is that? Right awareness. That speaks of the mindfulness. That I never get attached to the things. I know this body-mind complex like a river is flowing, going through the various experiences of life. I am practicing mindfulness by being detached. I am just an onlooker. I am not a part of it. This practicing of awareness, mindfulness is so now common because it has a tremendous therapeutic effect. Apart from its spiritual overtones, it has a therapeutic effect. So that's the thing which has been spoken of as the right awareness. But that's not all. Now this right awareness in the form of mindfulness has got so much of importance. We forgot that the last thing Buddha spoke of is right concentration. Right awareness is the, not the last. After you have calmed down your mind through this right awareness, which in the yoga speaks of pratyahara, then comes dharana, dhyana, samadhi. Concentration is important. Something you have to focus. If not mantra, at least breath. In Buddhism, we find mantra is also there. It's not that the mantras are not there. If not mantra, you can concentrate on your breath. That also speaks of focus. First, just relaxing the mind by the right awareness, by mindfulness, you focus. When you do that, it takes you to the realization, ultimate realization, right? Focus. To give you a common example that how the focus helps in realization, that the more you focus on anything, the more the other thing starts falling off. In this life, we will find that the mind has a limited capacity to process information. When I am getting focused, when my mind is distracted, what is happening when I'm talking to you, I can take care of other activities because it's only a small part of my mind is required to go on with the conversation. But when I am more and more focused, when I'm watching the TV, I'm watching the game, which I like most, someone calls, I don't hear because my mind is taken away by that. It cannot now process the other information, it cannot hear. If you're still more focused, it happens with the painter, with the classical singer or anyone who is 
in this performing arts, we find they enter into a state of flow. They get so focused, they forget hunger, thirst, tiredness, all the, the part of the mind required to remind you of all those bodily alarm systems, they fall off. At last, the ego, which gives me the sensation that I am this body-mind complex, that also falls off. The mind falls off for the first time, taking you to the realization. Mind is just like, as we tell again and again, that mind is like a prism on which the white light falls to break into the spectrum of this seven colors. Similarly, this world of name and form is a mere projection. It's not really there. Even science will say you, uh, we have discussed and we will again discuss so in so many occasions. It's just as long as the mind is there, the world appears in the form of name and form. The Nama Rupa, what I'm seeing, is actually the consciousness and consciousness alone. So all the spiritual practice in all the religious tradition, if you go to, if you just follow the mystic tradition, that's what they're doing through focus in whatever it may be, the mind at last falls off. How the focus is so much that even that I am this body-mind complex, that's the last bit of awareness that also is taken away by your object of concentration. And then for the first time, the let go ensues. Not only it takes you to the realization, it gives you tremendous happiness. Because till now you were carrying the baggage of your mind with all its samskaras. I was carrying it for such a long time, I never realized that I'm carrying a weight. And for the first time, when for certain reason you keep it down, and suddenly you realize, oh, I'm feeling so light. This weight I was carrying, this worthless weight for the first time, and I let go, a relaxation comes. So the moment you go beyond the mind, a tremendous bliss ensues, a wonderful bliss ensues taking you to the ultimate realization, taking you to the realization of the ultimate reality. So this takes you to some experiential knowledge. As Swami Vivekananda told, I've heard of the mirage, but for the first time I realized it. How I realized? I was passing through the desert. I was thirsty. I was in search of water. And suddenly I saw a huge reservoir. As I was thirsty, I started approaching it. The more I approached, I found after some time that it has vanished. It is not there. At first it appeared as if it is receding. And then suddenly I saw it's no more there. Then the thought came that from childhood, I have heard of Mirage. For the first time I have realized. Now what's the difference? Next day when I'm again passing through the desert, again, I'm thirsty. Again, I see it. It's not that I won't see anymore. Again, I see the reservoir. But today it has lost the power to drag me. I know it's a mere projection. So once through the right concentration, you go to that, then you are free. Jivan Mukti Sukha Prapti. The world still may come back, but you are now a different person. Your perspective has changed. Nothing can now draw you uh, towards it. You don't need the willpower to restrict yourself. The, everything has lost its meaning. You can enjoy life only when you reach that state. And that happens only through the right concentration. The mere intellectual understanding can never take you there. And that's why he starts with that intellectual understanding, but ends with that right awareness and right concentration. That's how he shows the way. Once you realize, you go to that state, you realize, you know the truth. I want that there is no need to explain. Because if I try to explain, unless you have realized, you can never understand. So there's no question of denying of God or assertion of God. He's just showing the way so that you go and realize the truth. And then you are free. 
Let's just read another story of Buddha. We will end today's discussion. It's already time that when someone told uh, this, this was speaking to Buddha, that why don't you speak of the ultimate realization? Then what he told is very interesting. But first of all, if I told, no one will understand. That's there. And then he gave a nice example. He told that you speak, that's, that in the Vedanta we speak of ignorance. It's because of ignorance that we are suffering. Then, and if you try to find out the nature of ignorance, again, it is something, a fruitless uh, endeavor. We somehow have to find out the way to go beyond the ignorance. What example he's giving is something very interesting. He's saying, suppose you're passing through a forest. You're passing through a forest. Just if I, in all the religion we find, they speak of the original evil, that original uh, sin or ignorance, whatever it may be. And we try to find out the nature of it. Buddha is saying they are all futile. Why? Very nice example he's giving. Suppose you're passing through a desert, a forest, and from nowhere, you don't know from somewhere, a poisoned arrow came and strikes you. Now, what is your duty? Buddha is saying. Will you go, will you just sit down and go on pondering who shot, why he shot, what I haven't harmed anyone, why, what enmity he has towards me, what poison he has used? By the time you find the answer, you will die. Forget about all those questions. Somehow I have to get rid of the arrow, apply some antidote and get rid of the effect of the poison and save myself. So why the original sin? From where this sin has entered me? From where the ignorance came? Forget about it. This eightfold path is the way to get rid of the poison, to get rid of the arrow, arrow and to render you freedom. Follow it and be free. So that's what Buddha said. So that's why we find that Swami Vivekananda always used to say that Buddha's life is just for Bahujana Hitaya, Bahujana Sukhaya. It is a phrase used in Buddhism that Buddha's life is for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many. That's what his life is. He came down from that state of realization for the welfare of all. He's the universal message of Buddha in just in simple phrase as per Swami Vivekananda is be good and do good. Don't think of all those philosophies. Try to practice the shila, meditation, be good, and that, and whatever actions you're doing, so that you try to do good to the world. And never think of the last message of Buddha was when Buddha was dying, when the disciples were crying, that what happens when you go? The last message was Atma Deepa Be light unto yourself. Just don't go on expecting that someone will be. Uh, there to help you out from the situation. You are potentially having the power to come out of this bondage. So don't expect. As Shankaracharya says, that when you are hungry, if someone, ex- someone else takes the food, are you going to be satiated? No. For your hunger, you have to take the food. That's what is meant by Atma Buddha, again and again speaking of, of that, don't rely on others. Don't simply hang on to the others don't, don't use the faith as a pig to hang yourself. So just rely upon yourself. Be watchful. Just see the flow which is going on. Try to be beyond that and go beyond the mind to realize what you are, which cannot be explained. You have to yourself realize and be free. So that's the message for, 
45 years, Buddha priest till at the age of 80, ripe old age, he passed away. And that's the beauty of the Indian subcontinent. He was preaching something which was something like a rebel child, rebel child's philosophy. And we find that he was quite well accepted. He was not crucified. He was quite, he was alive till the age of 80, was quite free to spread his message. And that message was spread throughout Southeast Asia. And we find that Buddhism is still a flourishing religion with a message which even the modern academic world find is something which can be entered into the academics. Other religions is a big question. Buddhism has easily entered into the academics because of its this rational attitude. Buddha is the most rational man in the world. Till now, all the, this, the entire humanity has produced. No one is more rational than Buddha, as Swami Vivekananda used to say. Just by resorting to the reason, he's taking humanity to the way of perfection. And that's how we all can also resort to this path. We can adopt some way or other to this path and just enjoy the bliss of liberation in this life so that we can all enjoy the taste of liberation in this life. Let's just, with this prayer, let us conclude our discussion today. Namaskars to you all. Thank you.